We're looking at Genesis chapter 2. We've been looking at Genesis now. I think this is the 14th or 15th sermon. Uh, 12 of them on chapter 1. I warned you that uh, it's kind of how it works. Uh, there's a lot in there. The, is the beginning. It's the purpose and the basics of many things that are in the rest of the Bible. Marriage is no exception. Today we're going to look at marriage. And um, I've entitled it, As Long As We Both Shall Live, So Long As We Both Shall Live. And uh, we are simply going to look at the basics. There are people in this auditorium that are in all different categories as to deal with marriage. Some of you haven't even thought about marriage yet. That's okay. Some have been through marriage and you're at the other end where your spouse has passed away. Those kinds of things. Some have been divorced and remarried. Some are in the midst of marriage problems like nobody knows. Uh, You name it. There are all kinds of people. That's not my subject this morning. My subject this morning is the bottom line, God's purpose for marriage. We will deal with other areas in the future, but not today. Today, we're simply going to look at the basics, the bottom line of marriage, the way God gave it to us. This is the only institution that God put into effect before sin came into the world. There's a reason for that. We'll study that as we go. As you know, there are three topics that I believe very strongly we not only need to deal with in the church, but we need to deal with in our society around us. The first is creation. We've spent time on creation. Because if we just got here by chance, we're not answerable to anyone. Do whatever you want to do. Make your own rules. The Bible says you were created by God. He is the one that we answer to. We are responsible to him. The second one is abortion simply because of this. If we take life other than when God takes it, we are saying life really isn't that valuable. Whether it's before they're born or in old age, doesn't matter. Life's not valuable. So who cares about anything else? The rest of what we have to say really means nothing. And then there's marriage, the one we're going to talk about today. It is the pivot, the center, the hub of every other area of society. If we don't have strong, strong families, strong marriages, we won't have strong families. If we don't have strong marriages, we won't have strong families, and we won't have strong churches. And we won't have strong society. And our government will be in shambles. Because we'll be dealing with all the negative effects of a society that does not have a strong family unit. I do not apologize for any of those things. I take a very hard, uh, strong stance. I don't apologize for that either. You may take exception, but I will tell you that no matter where you are, what you think, I'm going to treat you the same. That's just the way it is. Um, then that's just the way it needs to be. Uh, the Word of God is the Word of God. The principles are there. Um, you know, we just have to deal with them, and I do too. So let's look at what the Bible says. And... Uh, These are not going to be unfamiliar uh, verses to you, but we're going to start in uh, Luke. No, I'm in the Old Testament. I'm in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A verse that all of you know, it's not new to you. But maybe you haven't looked at the whole thing, and that's what I'd like to do. First of all, man is not complete on his own. Notice it does not say that Adam wasn't perfect. 
we know that everything God created was good. Sin had not entered the world. So Adam's perfect. But just like a project that you have started and you're meticulous on doing the project, but hasn't come to an end, you say, hey, this is perfect, except that it's not complete. And that's what God says. Remember, God created the animals in mass, created the plants in mass. Everything else is massive, but not man. He created one single man. And he said, oh, by the way, on the sixth day, I'm not completed yet because there's something else needed. It is not good for the man to be alone. Notice, you could translate this and say, the man is lonely. The problem is, this all happened in less than one 24-hour day. So I don't know that that fits. But what he is saying is something is still missing. Man is not complete. It goes on to say, I will make him a helper. That's suitable for him. If you use King James Version, it says that. Two words in Hebrew uh, with two completely different meanings. The first one is the word helper. You go, oh, so the wife is less than because she's the helper. Wrong. The word is used many times in the Old Testament. And guess who it's used of? It's used of God Almighty Himself. For example, I'll just give you a few examples. Psalm 33, 20. For the Lord, He is our help. Psalm 70, verse 5. Oh God, You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 115, verse 9. We trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Does that make God less than? The answer is absolutely not. This is not a value term. It is just what it says. He is the one that is there to help us. Guess what, guys? That means we are going to have a hard time making it on our own. And that is the truth. Um, I don't want to be without my wife. In fact, as I just told Jeff Lyons this morning, you know what? If I think for a second about what it would be like if my wife left me or she died, I have to stop thinking that direction because it's too painful to think that way. Because God created us with a hole. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm making someone to fill that hole. And in Adam's case, of course, we know that was Eve. We are not having someone made like us. I'll tell you what, in my mind... And in my shop, my man cave, I'm going, why can't Faye think like I do? Why doesn't she always agree with me? Why do we think so differently sometimes? And then I go, okay, Lord, no, the world can't handle two of you. Uh, two of me, I mean, and probably can't handle two of her and probably can't handle two of you. You know what? Because the whole helper suitable for him is not unison but harmony. If we had a choir up here, which we have many times, the choir would not sing in unison. They could, but that's not normally what a choir does. A choir sings in harmony. Different parts blending together for a much fuller, better sound in the whole end. That's the way God has designed marriage. Not so your spouse is like you. You know the illustration. I'll use it one more time and then I won't ever use it again. Well, at least for a short time. But you know what? My wife and I are very, very different. And there's no doubt about that we're very different. When we look at an apartment, I look at it and say, is it fixable? Is it work? You know, can I deal with it? Um, You know, those kinds of things function. Does it work? And she goes, does it look good? 
Well, when you put it together, it is looking good and it works. That's, that's not unison, but that's working in harmony. Oh, yeah, that causes some tension. Don't get me wrong. It definitely does. Uh, and if she was here, she would agree with that. But you know what? The end result is much better than if we both the same. Because if it just looks good, that's, wall, that's window dressing. If it just works, it can look, well, it can look like it looks. You know, and that would be bad. Because I really don't care about some of those things at times. But the point is, God gave us someone to compliment us. That, from the very beginning, that's always been the way it is. To fulfill or to complete. The way I express it to most people, especially in premarital counseling, I say, this whole term encompasses two concepts. Companionship and partnership. Companionship is the relationship part of a marriage. It's the interaction that we have on an emotional level, intellectual level, and those types of things. On the other hand, the partnership is almost like a business. Getting things done, working together for an end, whether it's raising kids or fixing an apartment or working in ministry, it doesn't matter. But two people working together for a good end. Partnership and companionship. God brings the two together for one better end. And that's what he wants. Actually, the word suitable or meet is means to be the opposite. Not butting heads, but not the same. Complementary. Did I get that across? I think I hopefully did. That's the first point. Not good for man to be on his own. He's not complete. It takes two to make that. It's why it hurts so bad when a marriage breaks up, when a spouse dies, when there's separation. Because God has designed us to need each other. It's a very tough thing to deal with. Believe me, there's a lot of uh, things that we're not going to deal with in this sermon and maybe even other sermons, but I deal with them almost on a weekly basis in my office. No other part of creation would meet that need. It's interesting, if you've never seen it this way, let's pick up the narrative at verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, remember what God had already said. And this all happened in one day. So remember, this is not a long, drawn-out process. He said that man was to rule and subdue the earth. And this is one very practical aspect of that. How is he going to rule the earth? He is going to name the animals, which simply means he is the one that's over them, has authority over them. He's the one that gave them the name. The Creator owns them, and he is the one that says, hey, I'm going to give you the name, and that shows that superiority that he has over the animals. But notice how it ends. But for Adam, in all of this vast creation that he has just named, not one single entity was there that could meet the need to complete Adam. Wow. Is it a mistake? The answer is no, because of course God knew exactly what he was going to do. Verse 21 ends this point. So, as a result of what just happened, so there wasn't anything to make that completion. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. 
Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. You probably heard the old story. I don't know who started it, but you might remember that this story from someplace else. It says, God didn't take a bone out of Adam's head and make Eve because that would make Eve above him. Didn't take a bone out of his foot because that would put Eve below him. But he took a rib out of his side so they could indeed be partners and companions, a completion of each other. If you remember it that way, you understand the relationship and how it's supposed to work. Ultimately, it's not about the positions. It's two people in this together. As I say in my marriage ceremony, everything done for the good of both and the detriment of neither. That's God's perspective when you put it all together in one sentence. Now, the man, it wasn't good. He wasn't complete on his own. He needed a partner. But the woman was never meant to be on her own either. Notice what it says, starting in verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, wow. Now, I jokingly said before, God kept his best part of creation for last. I still believe that, but that's only in a human point of view. Because let's face it, ladies, he did a superior job when he made you. Us guys, well, we're less than. How's that when it comes to these things? But it says, and look what it says. The man said, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice, the woman was never meant to be alone. Man was not okay on his own, but the woman was made for a very specific purpose, and that was to complement and complete the man. The two together. That's the key phrase. Because we know when we come to the next verse, because there are changes that come in marriage. The key verse in all the Bible dealing with marriage is right in front of you. It's also in your Bible. It says, for this reason. What does that refer back to? Verse 23. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined or cleaved to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That one flesh I'm going to dwell on for the rest of the sermon or most of the rest of the sermon. But notice, the reason that he says what he says next is because they are indeed to be one flesh. There are a number of ways that can be taken. There are a number of ways in the Bible that it's actually expressed. It's not going to uh, probably surprise you at a few of them, but some of the others you may never have thought of, actually. But notice what it says here before we move on to that. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. You know what happens here, guys? You now become the head of a new family unit, a patriarchal society. And that's the way the Bible is, and that's the way we are. It is the man has a responsibility. Oh, you're in it together. There's no doubt about it. But guys, as you've heard when I talked about what is masculinity and those types of things, you have responsibilities to be a spiritual leader, to be a provider, to be a protector. God made you that way. He designed you that way, and that's the way you're supposed to function. And he says, you now become the head of a new family unit. Let me tell you, all young guys that aren't married yet, that's serious business. All young ladies, that's serious business. Because guess what? 
you heard the old proverbial, cut the apron strings? When you get married, you cut the apron strings. I, my wife and I struggle with that, and probably a lot of you did too. It's like, well, my parents think this, and my parents... You know what? I, I remember. My wife probably doesn't even remember this anymore, but I one day said, you know what? I need to get my attitude straight. I'm a little stubborn. I will listen to what your mom and dad say, and then we will make the decision. Well, that's, that's what it's supposed to be. You know what? Because you are a new family unit, and you are responsible to God before God for what happens to that unit. Guys, that puts you on the hook for taking the leadership. Women, that puts you on the hook. It's not, well, my mom thinks this isn't the way we do it, or that's not the way my dad did it. You know what? Get rid of all that. I told you I was going to counseling today, but that's where this all goes. You need to stop. It's you together, and you both answer to God together, and you answer to each other. But it says that we'll be joined to the wife. That's the leave and cleave principle. You cannot cleave and become one with your spouse if you don't leave your parents. That's important. Really, really important. Otherwise, you will have conflict like you've never seen before. By the way, they may interfere and you may have to say, you know what, mom and dad, you do need to step back because guess what the Bible says? The Bible says this. That includes us and that includes you. We need to do that. By the way, if you're a meddling, you're a meddling uh, parent, uh, you need to take uh, heart to this also. Anyway, moving on. How does this one, what does this one flesh look like? Well, first of all, if you haven't noticed... The first thing is, for Adam and Eve in particular, it literally meant one flesh. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I always ask this trick question when I do premarital counseling. So, who did Adam marry? And of course, the answer is, we married Eve. I said, okay, who did he really marry? Based on bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's literally marrying himself. Now, I realize she was not a clone of him. She's female. She's Eve. He's Adam. They came from the same source. You have to remember, when God uses the term one flesh, he's not using it lightly. Literally, when it began, they were the same flesh. She came directly from Adam. And... uh, that's where it is. So, that, so the first one is, is, when you look at it, this is a very strong term. The second thing, it refers to the bonds of marriage. Now we'll go back to uh, Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 later on in a, a future sermon. But there it quotes, and by the way, this verse, verse 24, is quoted four times in the New Testament. In this case, it's talking about the bond of marriage. Listen to how it says it. It says it this way. And for the, this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. The word joined is the word yoke, as in two oxen in a yoke used to pull a cart or a plow or whatever else. He's putting them together. That's the bond of marriage. And he says, no man is to cause a separation. No man is to be the cause of taking one of those necks out of the yoke. It's the bond of marriage when it's referring to that. So that's the second one. The third one is that they are, there is a physical relationship. 
very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Part of that verse is quoted. Not the whole thing, just part of the verse. And there's a reason for that. Well, let's look at what it says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. May that never happen. But verse 16 goes on to say this, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he, that is God, says the two shall become one flesh. Now, it doesn't quote the whole verse. See, it doesn't have the leave and cleave in there. But let's face it. If you are having sex outside of the bonds of marriage with anyone else, whether it's a prostitute or someone you're having an affair with, you're acting like you're married. You're having a physical relationship with them. It's wrong. Because... It's not according to the Bible. The Bible says if you're going to have that kind of a relationship, you have to have a leave and cleave. You have to have a commitment to that person in marriage. And so, one flesh has to do with the physical, intimate relationship of marriage, as well as the other things we've looked at. But it also has to do with the love relationship of marriage. This verse is also quoted in Ephesians chapter 5, probably the one that I use the most. And it starts in... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and goes to the end of the chapter. But right in the middle of it, it says this in verse 28. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice the next verse. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, Christ loves the church, and Christ doesn't give up on the church and his relationship to it. If I was Christ... The church would be gone. The church started in Acts chapter 2. And by Acts chapter 6, I would have written it off and said, Good riddance. You people are a pain in the neck. I'm getting rid of it. But he didn't do that. And by the way, if you don't know what happened in Acts chapter 6, they started griping and complaining about each other already. You know what? He didn't do that. 2,000 years later, he still puts up with Pastor Paul and Pastor John and you. <laughs> you know, that's part of the church. He doesn't give up and quit loving us. He doesn't quit nourishing and cherishing us. And you know what? If you think the standard is low and you say, well, men are sinful. No, he says, hold a second. The bottom line is this. It's how Christ does, operates with the church. How Christ loves the church. How Christ nourishes, cherishes the church. Builds up the church. He wants us. You say, well, my life is nothing like this. I'm not telling you what your life is this morning. I'm just saying this. You want to know God's principle? You want to know where Pastor Paul's coming from? You want to know what the Bible says? That's what we're dealing with this morning. The bottom line. The bottom line purpose. The beginning of this whole thing. And there's also one last thing. There is a commitment to that bond of marriage. Now... I'm going to have one more slide that I'm going to use, and it has a few things on it. I usually get a lot of grief for this one, because I make the statement that when you get married, you make a vow, you make a covenant, 
and you also have a contract. A lot of people go, oh, I don't like that contract thing. I think when I'm done, you'll understand where I'm coming from. You you can vary uh, a little bit from this, and I believe you'll still be okay. But I believe these three things. The first two, most people don't have a problem with. It's the last one that they go, I don't know if I like that last one. Well, let's look at them and see exactly what they are. So what does that commitment look like? What is that commitment that we have? First of all, a vow is this, whether you look it up in a... Uh, English dictionary, or whether you look it up in the Bible, a vow is this. I unilaterally make an agreement or a promise to someone else on my own. In other words, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the other person. Look at the marriage vows. I, Paul Malfair, take thee. It doesn't say, if you do this, 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 and this. It doesn't do that. I am in and of myself saying... And I will keep myself to you only as long as we both show that. That's a vow. Many times when a vow is used in the Bible, it's about something that a person says, I'm going to do for God. I'm going to give something. I'm going to do something. You say, well, you know what? You make a promise in and of yourself, whether it's to God or someone else. But what if you change your mind? God takes this very seriously, folks. You know what it says? It says, better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. God takes vows seriously. Even though nobody else is forcing you to do that. Nobody is twisting your arm. Nobody is making you do it. God's not making you do it. There are things that God commands of us, but they're not vows. A vow is something that I voluntarily, unilaterally decide to do, and I express that. I'm serious about it. That's what the word solemn means. I'm dead serious about it. Heart attack, serious about it. You know, that's what I'm doing. God says, you make a vow, you are to keep it. Pay what you owe. Pay what you have vowed. It says that many times in the Old Testament. By the way, I have all those verses and things there. I don't want to run you over time. You want the the notes from these things, just email me and you'll get them. So anyway, but regardless, and by the way, even in Ecclesiastes 5, 6, it says, don't make a vow and then say, oh, I made a mistake, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> he says, don't do it. You make a vow, you keep it. Young people that aren't married, it's serious. What I say? Heart attack serious? It's heart attack serious. If you make a vow to a young lady or a young man, it's serious. God holds you to it. The second one is a covenant. A covenant is different because, and there's something different about a covenant than just simply a contract. A covenant is something that you enter in joyfully, something you really, really want to do. And two people agree together. You do the exact same thing when you get, you do this when you get married. You both agree that you're in this together and you carry it out and act in that way. You might say, yeah, but man, you you don't know the circumstances. Let me give you a story, biblical story, that you you probably know this. Maybe you've never thought about it. How does God see a covenant? Well, he sees it in the exact same way he does a vow. You might remember back in Joshua, as they were going into the promised land, God told them to go in and wipe everyone out. They get in there, and the Gibeonites heard what was, God had done in Ai and, and uh, 
other places and how they had just run roughshod right over everybody, killed everybody, and it just went uh, down. Jericho is the other word I was looking for. And they got scared. So what did they do? They became deceitful. They took dried out bread, worn out clothes, worn out sandals, and they pretended like they came from a long distance away. And they came to Joshua and they said, we are from a far country and we've heard about your God and uh, we want to make a covenant with you. And Joshua, uh, that you won't harm us. We're not in the way, by the way, they really were. But they lied about it. They deceived in every possible way. The words and their actions, they deceived them. And so Joshua, without talking to the Lord, says, okay, we'll make a covenant with you. They find out three days later that they had lied through their teeth. They had lied face to face to them. They had deceived them in every possible way. And at that point, they said, okay, what are we going to do? We made a covenant. We can't kill them because we made a covenant with them. Remember, this is right immediately. Made a covenant. We can't do that. So they became uh, haulers of water and hewers of wood in the midst. Basically servants to the children of Israel. That went on for 400 years. Okay? Something done under the sea. When Saul, the bloody king of Israel, came on the scene, he killed a bunch of the Gibeonites. Remember? They made a covenant 400 years ago under false pretenses that they wouldn't kill them. Now David, now Saul's out of, out of kingship, and David's now the king. And there's a famine in the land, and it lasts for three years. And David is getting very suspicious of what was going on. And he went to the Lord and said, Lord, what is going on? God said, it's because of the bloody actions of Saul before you. He killed the Gibeonites. You're going to deal with it? You're going to have to deal with it harshly. So he went to the Gibeonites and said, look, we've sinned against you. What do you want us to do? And they said, give us the sons of Saul. And so seven of the sons of Saul were killed and hanged as a result of that. And the plague stopped. But think about that. And it's called the covenant when it was made, and it was called the covenant when David was dealing with it, and God holds them accountable. A covenant made. Because I've heard over and over again in, in counseling, people say, well, you don't understand. I was young and stupid and foolish, and I got married, and I did this and that. You know what? A covenant is a covenant is a covenant, and God looks at it that way. That, you want to know God's point of view? That's God's point of view. A vow? It's serious. A covenant? It's serious. But there's one last one that I want to look at this morning, and that's a contract. And people go, hold it a second. I don't know about that. I don't like that. Find it in the Bible. You know, sh- show me where you find that kind of a principle. Well, it's kind of the same as covenant to start with, So, but... It has one other thing in there. It says legally binding agreement. If you're wondering what a marriage is like, if it is actually a contract, think about this. If you're married today and you want to marry somebody else without being divorced or them dying, go try doing that. It's against the law. (laughs) You're breaking the law. You're saying, as long as I'm married to this person, I'm not marrying anybody else. And, And the law, even our... Even our government, is, as messed up as we are on some of these things, won't let you do that. Or, if you're a guy and you just bail out on your family, 
The law comes in and says, yes, you will support your children and maybe you will have to support your your ex-wife. You still have to do those things. You see, there are legally enforceable things. You say, well, what if I don't pay? What if I just don't do it? I'll come and visit you in Dauphin County Prison because that's what happens. Now, I don't know how much they do that anymore, but I do know they do that. You know, if you don't believe that, go look on the Internet and you'll find out that uh, there are lists of people and why are they in trouble? Child support, you name it, right down the list. It's there. There are legally enforceable things that are a part of marriage. Every time I do a marriage ceremony, I say, by the power vested in me by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, that's a legal part of it, that's required to say that, and according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it is a legally binding contract on one side, but it's also a covenant and a vow you make on the other side. But they all work together. God looks at this seriously. Some of you, and I know I've talked to you, and you still have hard times with this because of what's happened in the past. I'm not dealing with the past. All I know is this. Where you are now, this is God's view of marriage. This is what God says. If you're here and you're not married and you're thinking, hey, someday I would want to be married, I hope you remember back to these principles, to this sermon, and go, wow, Pastor Paul told us this is what God says. And you can get my notes. You can look at what the Bible says. It says the two shall become one. Wow, one flesh. That's serious. Keep using that word serious. But you know what? That's because it it applies. You could use the word solemn if you want. I don't use the word solemn very often. It sounds like a funeral. But it's serious. It's grave. It's important. And God looks at it that way. So if you're married, keep your vows. Keep the covenant. Keep the contract. If you're not, you need to look at this. And I know some of you young people, I'm looking in the right direction. And now I'll look the other direction. But uh, you're contemplating these things. Don't sit there smirk at me. (laughs) I don't know. I heard things, but I'm not sure if they're real or not. But anyhow, the whole point is this. If you're contemplating marriage, don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly. If you're in a hard situation, don't take it lightly. God doesn't take it lightly. Because it is, as I started this sermon, it is the building block of all of our society. God gave it for our good, our happiness. As I say in every wedding ceremony that I do, for the good of both and the detriment of neither. I believe that covers a whole lot of what the Bible says. The good of both people. Nothing is done to the detriment of neither, but for the good of both. That's God's view. I believe that's where it comes down. Did God say, oh, well, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll give marriage. Maybe that'd be a good idea. No, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And by the way, the woman was made for one particular purpose, to be that completion of the man. And that relationship to be the building block of all society. I will never tell you it's easy. I will never tell you I have all the answers. I won't tell you any of those things. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's tough. Sometimes against your will, it's tough. 
Sometimes two people just butting heads, and it's really tough. The point is, we need to look at it the way God looks at it. And how, all we have to do is go to Genesis chapter 2 from where he gave it. Man, it's, it's, it's not good for the man to be alone. And then he can, simply says, and I'm going to repeat it one more time. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One last verse. Verse 25 will bring us to the very end. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, there wasn't anything to be embarrassed about, to be ashamed about, to be guilty about. Because God gave it. And it's the only institution that God put into effect before sin came into the world. All the rest of the institutions were to deal with sin. Not this one. This was to deal with the needs that He built into us as people, as men and women. That's what He has done. It's a great institution. And God says that there are those parameters that He has given us. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, as we have looked at the Word of God, it's a, a very humbling thing to look at something as intimate, something as emotional, something as human as marriage. But we recognize that You're the one that gave it to us for our good, for our benefit. Not only as two people, but as a family, as a society, as a church. Lord, I pray that wherever people are this morning, that they would see this and they would live this to the fullest to glorify you in the circumstance they're in. Lord, help them to put this into practice. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God.